Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, John. How are you? Good, good. Just excited here in San Francisco. It's uh, AI Spring. I think it's spring. It's it's popping up around here. You know, I actually walked uh, by Moscone Center last week. It was, and there was an AI conference at the Moscone Center. Just random, you know, because that's just what happens around here. It's just what happens. I I actually read an article in the Times recently about how SF is undergoing some sort of uh, GAI boom boom time as well. So it's I, I I think everyone's shifting away from crypto and, and towards AI. But it's yeah, it's it's good to see that now the the city and the region have a have a new hobby. Yeah, yeah, it's actually very specific. Uh, you know, do you know Hayes Valley? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hayes Valley in San Francisco is like the supposed to be the the center. I haven't been invited to the AI hackathon, <laughs> being on the finance side myself. But from what I read, uh, you know, I've seen around is that that's it's all happening in in San Francisco now. They're gonna they're, hopefully they they ask ChatGPT how do you keep the streets clean of poop. You know, or <laughs> drug dealing or something like that. But, you know, the cities have are, are a mixed bag in general. So, but yeah, exactly. it, it's it's interesting <laughs> to see that. And um, yeah, I guess uh, we're we're leaving yet another AI winter and uh, getting some uh, some investments and uh, hopefully helping out uh, San Francisco. I mentioned that because we're lucky to have this week someone that knows a lot about this area, uh, Stephen <laughs> Wasik the founder of InfoSentience. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I see that uh, you've, you've had InfoSentience. You're a founder there uh, at least the past 10 years. Uh, <laughs> so you've seen some, some ups and downs, and I'm sure you know a lot of the history. So how has this been affecting uh, you guys lately? Well, I, I would say mostly positive because it's on people's radar now in a way that it just wasn't for a very long time. Uh, you, we do. We we used to say that we did natural language generation. Now, of course, we say we do generative AI. But natural language move, gen- good marketing. Good yeah, marketing. thank you, thank you. So, natural language generation was sort of the redheaded stepchild of um, you know natural language processing (NLP). I mean, there's whole departments right within every college in the country, basically, that were doing NLP and NLG, which to me was just kind of like the flip side of the coin and just as valuable and interesting. Um, sorry, which is natural language generation, just to be clear. Um, you know, it just didn't really get a lot of interest from folks. And that has been completely turned on its head in the last, you know, four or five months. And so it's definitely nice when we're having an intro call, let's say, with somebody, you, you know, you can tell that they've kind of got some heat on them from the higher ups of like, hey, oh. what are you doing in this space? Right. And so it's much easier for us to kind of make the case in general terms, right, for doing something uh, in the natural language generation field, but, you know, you still have to, sales are still, (laughs) they're all about what, what value are you going to give in particular, you know, in this particular situation with this particular set of data, you know, with this particular set of outputs. So at the end of the day, the sales cycle itself is still pretty much the same, but it's, it's just a nice kind of, push, I guess, behind it um, to kind of keep people interested. Yeah, it's nice when you people are like, I, I imagine, um, where they're like, oh, yeah, large language model. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, that right. no problem. Whereas like a year ago, they're like, well, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, but what is your target customer? What's an ideal customer or or application 
or a use case for an InfoSentience client? Well, I, I'll start off by actually maybe throwing a wrench in this whole podcast by saying we actually don't use LLMs. So we have taken a very different pathway. And so maybe I'll give you a quick overview of, of sort of the technical differences between us and something like ChatGPT. And then I can do a better job addressing that question, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're totally not technical. So that, that's Got really it. helpful. Yeah, so LLMs, just as a quick overview, you know, they're basically going from text to text, right? They have this huge corpus of, of text, basically everything that you can find gets processed and then you can then interact with it using text and then it can generate a lot of text. I mean, it can generate like a whole novel, but what we do is more going from data to text and that's a little bit different. And, and what we use as our tool, at least it's the foundation of our tool is what we call conceptual automata, which are these basically the breaking down a story or a sentence into its smallest components and then putting them together into something that then can form a sentence or a paragraph or even a whole article. So just to give you an example, we, we do a lot of stuff in sports and you could have the concept of a team, right? Which we all understand, okay, there's a team and you can have a concept of a team winning a game. So some people don't get the concept of a team I've worked with. But, oh, <laughs> I understand, go ahead. Okay, so uh, they, they need help that we can't provide, unfortunately. So if you have a team and you have a concept of a team winning a game, and then you might have a concept of a streak, right? Just a general concept of a streak, which is just a sequence of the same event appearing over time. Well, you can put all those together all those little, what we call conceptual automata together, and now you have a story, a team's on a winning streak, right? And, and then you can combine those, that story with something else. And maybe that story is even just a subcomponent of a sentence, right? Like you could say, hey, a team was on a winning streak and now they lost this game. So now it's, now it's sort of a broken streak, right? And as human beings, we do this really, really effectively, right? Where we can take all these little pieces of things and jam them together and understand how they work well together and how they interact with every other thing that's in our brains. And that's a, a tremendous sort of superpower of human thinking. That's what we've tried to do with our, with our system is to, to kind of create, create human style thinking about data, sort of building from these base principles on up. And one of the big advantages of that is that it, it allows us to be basically hundred percent accurate and not have these problems with hallucinations, which I think people are pretty familiar with, with LLMs. Like if an LLM doesn't know what it's talking about, it will not necessarily admit that. And it will try to do its best to, to, uh, to talk about something and, and can be incorrect. And obviously if you're talking about data and certainly we'll talk about finance, right. Um, that's bad. Like something that's 99% accurate is kind of hundred percent useless. And so, you know, we, the LLMs, I think, struggle with, with, with these large data sets for a variety of reasons which we could talk about later. And so that's just a real quick overview of kind of the difference between what we do and what ChatGPT and his other LLMs do. And so for us, the, the best customers are, are people that have a lot of data, which is pretty common these days. But the other thing that we need to do is we need to have something that has a lot of, of potential complexities in the output. And what I mean by that is, and I'll just give a quick example, again, from the world of sports, sorry <laughs> if I keep going there, but basically if you say, hey, what, who won you know, the Bears and the Colts, right? Like this NFL game. If all you care about is the score, then you don't need our system, right? Because you can just look at the score and that's all you care about. If you say what happened in the Bears and Colts game, that's a much more complicated 
question, right? Because a lot of things happened, right? And you, if somebody said, oh, well, first play, you know, they they ran off tackle and they got two yards, then they dropped back to pass and it was incomplete. And then they completed a seven yard, you know, like that's not what people mean when they say what happened. They don't want every single thing that happened in the entire game. What they really want is a synthesis, right? They, they want somebody and this mostly typically in the past, it'd be a journalist who watched the whole game, who understands what were sort of the key points in the game, what were the, the key takeaways. And they want that synthesis to then be able to really quickly understand, quote unquote, what happened in the game. And that's what we aim to do with our technology is to take, you know, really complicated data sets, analyze it for every possible permutation of, of interesting things that happen, and then be able to write a quick summary of that that people can very easily digest. And the one other thing that we need is scale, right? Because what we do is essentially we build a factory to produce this content. And so if you just have like a quarterly report, that's not really something that we're going to be involved in. But if you have something like, like with the, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is one of our big finance clients, where you have a ton of commodities and they're all moving and they all have subcomponents and metrics up to wazoo, right? And all those things are moving and churning. Um, it's really hard to, to report on that accurately with human beings. And so that's a situation where if you have a, a piece of software that can really digest all of that and come up with a good piece of content that people are interested in, then it becomes valuable. So going back to the to the sports section here, I know that, um, so for example, I play fantasy baseball on Yahoo, right? And I get a yes. lot of write-ups on players, right? And yes. it seems to me like a lot of that is written by a machine or a bot. It's not it's not a human actually writing, you know, so-and-so mm-hmm. struck a three times and has a whip of whatever, uh, 0.9 or whatever. Um, but, but I'm curious, what percentage of sports write-ups now are sort of at that length, at one paragraph length, are written by bots? I'm, I'm assuming that it has to be more than half. And also in terms of the data input, is, is it just feeding it a box score, say, from a game uh, or is it feeding it um, uh, or do you actually feed it information about the player's past performance or uh, of say the past, I don't know, week, two weeks, month or whatever, or the season. So, so what are the, the data parameters that you use to create an interesting kind of catchy one paragraph yeah. thing on a player? Well, the quick answer to that second question is basically everything is what we try to, to digest because we're looking for the most interesting angles, right. To talk about. And so the more, data that we have, the more possibilities that we can churn through to write up something that's really compelling. I think that, you know, looking at Yahoo, which that the the things that are done by Yahoo are by our competitor and, hey, we're just hanging out talking so I can talk a little bit of smack. Like, it's just not as good as what we do for CBS. It's a lot more what I call Mad Libs style, right? Where it's basically, they have kind of a template and then they fill it in with the stats, right? And the problem with that is, is that if you set up a template to talk about quote unquote the most pertinent information, it's all it's going to be the stuff that always happens, right? Like that's what you're going to set up for your template is is like okay, here's a team that won the game and here's the team that lost and here's their record and here's what they play next, right? These are the things that always happen, but the things that are interesting are the things that rarely happen, right? So if you have a template, essentially what you're doing is you're creating something that's always going to talk about the most basic, uninteresting stuff. And it's not Mm -hmm. very fun. And that's why you say, hey, I think it's written by a bot. And it's like, why do you think that? It's not because it's like misspelled or something. It's like, what are you picking up on? You're picking up on the fact that these are really repetitive and similar. And that's not what human beings, if you you know, like if you're a journalist writing about stuff, you want to find that interesting stuff. And you have to have the flexibility on the back end to actually incorporate all those different 
possibilities in order to create something interesting. And that's what, what we try to do with our content. As far as how much stuff is is being written that's automated, I you know, I don't know actually. Um, hmm. it's really hard to say. I know that CBS, who we work with, I think, um, is doing more automated content than most. Uh, we because we cover actually live sports as well as fantasy. So we do a bunch of fantasy stuff. We do live sports like NFL, uh, college football, basketball, European soccer leagues. I mean, we do a lot of stuff with CBS where we're providing, you know, previews of those games. And yeah, but as far as like exactly how many, I'm not sure. Cause there's probably a lot of sort of fly by night sites that are doing again, very templated, basic versions of sports content and I don't know, you know, how much we count them. Um, so I guess it's hard to say. So to go to a, a specific example, can you actually, can you fine tune the way that your tool can be more, say, creative and take more more um, creative freedoms with what they write? For example, I know that to go back to the baseball thing, just because I, I play it a lot, um, you know, you can refer to a home run as a home run, but some, some, um, uh, some, some other some reporters will refer to them as dongs or something else or bombs, mm -hmm. right? So can you sort of, um, can you fine tune and tweak the way that the that the the bot will create something that uses maybe less frequently used words like dong or bomb or something to, to refer to a, a, a home run? And how much creative freedom do you have to actually make this a more, um, to, to, to make it sound less robotic and less like a bot wrote it and more like a human who's passionate about the sport wrote it? Yes, we absolutely can do that. Now that is being done manually. Not it's not like with the LLMs where they've just, you know, got a bunch of series of weights somewhere in the back end that's like coming up with these variations. So the trick to doing that though is just like you said, you know, those are those terms are used a little bit less often. And because they're used less often, they also tend to have a little bit more of an impact when they are used. Right. So if you said home run three times in a paragraph, it might seem a little bit repetitive. But if you said bomb, you know, three times in a paragraph, it would really start to stand out as like, hey, this is kind of strange. Right. There's all these little subtleties like that when it comes to human writing that we don't even think about because we haven't thought about that since we literally learned how to write. And so they seem really obvious to us. But for a computer, it's much more complicated. And so literally what we have is sort of a hierarchy of words based off of uniqueness. And the system has the ability to sort of pick and choose what it's going to use for different for, for terminology in different situations, taking into account other things that it's written in the same article. And again, the uniqueness of that of that word and the appropriateness of that word. And so there's a lot of different factors that go into you know, making even a single single decision like that about a about even one word. Interesting. And going over to the financial services side as well, which is what we cover, um, can can this be used, for example, to analyze um, a, a 10K or a 10Q or something and make investment decisions based on what's written and reported maybe others might have missed or kind of find ways to um, uh, get more contextual clues about what, what's going on with with the company? Because that, that seems like a pretty interesting use case from from a financial investor perspective. Yeah, I I would hesitate to say that we could find stuff that other people could miss and, and have it be used as a, a real high-level diagnostic tool. But we actually work with one of our clients is called scientist.com. They're a, a biotech company. And we, we produce quite a bit of content for them. But one of them is just part of, of the content that we produce is looking at quarterly reports 
and just looking at earnings and and whether you know how they they did compared to analysts you know pr uh, projections and we we are planning on diving a little bit deeper into into those uh quarterly reports to surface more interesting information but i think that our tool essentially aims to be an analyst in a box right that's what we try to do is is set up something that can do the work of an analyst that a, that a trained analyst could do if they were looking at that same data set but I don't necessarily think that we're going to be better than an analyst, right? Like what we can do that an analyst can is say, all right, well, we'll do this report for every single quarterly report, you know, throughout the whole year for a much smaller cost, right? Like, but I, I would, I would, I don't want to oversell what we do uh, in saying that I, I'm not sure that we could in that situation sort of surface something that everybody else missed. Same, same thing like with, with what we do with sports journalism, it's like we can find some really interesting stats, but we don't think that a, a good journalist couldn't find, you know, similar stats if they were looking for them. So it's just a, a, a tool to, to make sure you don't miss some some things that are in there, along with a, like a supplementary tool to increase productivity or make sure you have a comprehensive or completeness. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for for example one of the big projects that we're working on with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is this new tool that's going to report on basically every single aspect of their commodity markets. And it's going to be sort of up to the minute information, constantly current, you know, full on articles and everything else we can talk about more, maybe potentially later. But, you, you know, if you think about the, the daily report, let's say for the corn market, like the, the corn commodity, we're not building that for the person who's trading within corn because they've been looking at those numbers all day, every day. That's literally their job, right? The corn report is for somebody who trades, you know, oil futures, right? And just kind of needs to know the basic rundown of like, hey, what happened in these other commodity markets? Then it's great because now they can get that quick synthesis, right? It's almost like the coach isn't going to read our recaps of the game either. <laughs> you know what I mean? For, for a sporting event. Like they were there, like they don't need to read read what what happened. So this is a, a tool, not necessarily for the expert per se, um, but a tool that can provide a really quick synthesis for information where somebody's not like essentially being paid to look at that data all day every day. And then you don't have to pay somebody to to do that, or yes. or you make one person that you know would have done one to review like. 20 or 30. Exactly. Yeah. Or they can add their own touch, like, because a lot of times things aren't necessarily coming from the data, right? So if you're running a company, there might be information that's coming from HR or just from talking to people or looking at the, the overall marketplace or... Or the CEO sends some crazy tweet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's not, you know, we're not going to surface that. So... Basically, you know, there's there's still very much a place for uh, for human beings at this point, at least. Uh, thank goodness to to really help out and make this a collaborative process. Interesting. So I actually, you know, I, I'm doing the very cliche thing that um, that we talked about before recording, which is I I put in what questions should I ask of a 
of a CEO who's working in, in, in this space now. And one of them, which I actually really find very interesting is um, as the CEO of a, of a GAI company, which I know that you're, you're sort of in, in that space now, what are some of the ethical considerations and safeguards that you have implemented to ensure responsible and transparent use of AI tech, especially in domains like content generation <clears throat> and deep fake prevention? And yeah, to yeah, add to I, that, I, I was think- I was gonna ask that, I was gonna ask yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> in exactly the same way, right? And I guess my question to, to that also is, as well is that, um, how do you think about how what you are doing can affect um, sort of the evolution of jobs. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that you're destroying jobs because I know that yeah. um, more things will just pop up, right? Like now we have, for, for example, we have we have um, AI Wrangler is now a job. Prompt Prompt Engineer is now a, a, a job as well. But I'm wondering how, how how do you think about deepfakes and and the effects that this will have on on jobs and roles? Well, I think in terms of deepfakes and transparency, because we build everything from this sort of from the ground up, we don't have that type of problem. Again, it's sort of related to the hallucinations issue, which is that these LLMs, you know, people build them, but they don't actually know what's going on because there's literally billions of these little weights, which don't correspond to any real human concept, right? That can be explained. And so they're very much a black box. And when they come up with something, it's not 100% clear why they did it. And if it's a problem, it's not exactly clear how to fix it. So thankfully, we don't have that problem. We, you know, if something happens, it's because we programmed it to, to do that. And if it's, you know, a mistake, then we know why it's a mistake and we can very easily change it. So that's a, an advantage that we have. But in terms of putting people out of out of work, I mean, we haven't really done that yet. I mean, I'm not going to say that it would never happen. But again, in my previous answer, you know, I was talking about there's so much room for collaboration, at least at this point that it's not something that we're we're really concerned about. Uh, you know, again, with CBS, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing are things that either nobody was doing before in the case of fantasy, because you can't write like a million fantasy articles in an hour, but our system can. Um, or it's things that are that were really sort of more rote uh, projects that that the writers didn't actually want to do. And so they're really happy to have a computer that can produce content at that same quality because then they can work on things that are a lot more interesting. So what's the next thing on the horizon for for what you guys do? Uh, what what's the obstacle or or next level that you, that you guys are working on? Well, I think this project with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is definitely the, the biggest thing that we're going to be doing because we've, we've come up with some pretty next level capabilities that are sort of behind a paywall right now because we're working with clients with their own proprietary data. And we're going to be doing this project with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is going to be showing the world a lot of these new techniques that are, I think, nobody's ever seen before. Basically, the, the project that we're doing with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is, is reporting on every single aspect of the commodities market in the same way that you would go to Yahoo Finance, for instance, and have a sort of a full, compelling, up-to-date webpage on, you know, the markets, right? Where we're producing, we're creating a webpage that's completely built with AI, that's reporting on all these, on all these different commodities, like subversion, you know, like different expirations, different metrics, all sorts of different things. And the, the difference between this and a human written site is that, you know, typically on a human written site, you're going to have like a crawl, right? On the side, you know, where it's like, here's all the stories that people have written over the course of the day. 
But, you know, those stories might be somewhat out, out, out of date, you know, by the time that you're reading something, whereas our system is going to be creating this live website with all this content, but that's always sort of now, right? It's like, this is exactly what's going on right now within the market. And everything that you're reading is pretty much using prices that are what the prices are right now. And so if something, you know, started the day way up, um, you know, that might be a story that a human being writes about, but then by the middle of the day, maybe it gave back all those gains. And so now that's not the story or the story is really that it's been volatile, right? Not that it was up. And so I think it's going to be a really interesting way to get news. And I think that people are going to respond to it really well. The other thing that's really cool about our system is that because it works off the basis of conceptual understanding, it not only can write about things, but it can also visualize them. And so you can literally... On our system, you're going to be able to drag and drop any sentence from the narrative into a chart or go vice versa. Say like, hey, turn this chart into a narrative, turn this, you know, um, you get turn, turn the text into a chart or turn it into a table or even turn it into a video. So you can literally press a button and there'll be an interactive video showing you that you can watch on any topic. So I think it's going to be pretty cool. And, uh, and it's definitely something that we can do for other organizations as well. So we think that uh, it's going to be have, make a pretty big impact and it's going to be ready in about four or five months. That'll be really important since uh, kids learn everything on YouTube these days. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only way they'll know how to, to learn. Uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, just a little bit off topic, um, but I've seen so many articles about the AI being the end of humanity and this kind of thing. What's your take on those kinds of that kind of reporting? And are there things uh, that you think we, we should be doing now to uh, make sure AI is uh, is a positive uh, yeah. overall, over the next and over the next few decades? No one's saying anything like tomorrow. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm very worried about it myself because I think I've been involved in in creating language you know, for over a decade. And it's really, really difficult. And so seeing what ChatGPT has been able to do, I, I mean, just sort of <laughs> by the grace of God, like it doesn't do well with data because otherwise my whole company would have just folded up instantly because the level of sophistication that it displays in terms of being able to talk about things, being able to write intelligently, <laughs> being able to write creatively. I mean, it's it's really astounding. And so having, I think, had this very personal experience of seeing how powerful AI can be in a field, you know, like I said, where I've worked very, very hard to, to, to get um, my product to do, you know, something similar. It, it's really, it's very scary. And, and I, I don't think that it's going to stop. I, I do think that at some point it's going to be essentially omni-capable, uh, you know, I mean, there's going to be some differences because of the architecture. It might not be perfectly, you know, capable of doing everything that a human being can do, but the, the amount of things that it can do, I think is just going to keep growing and growing. And I personally believe that what we should do, and this is sort of a weird belief, but whatever, um, I, I think that we should actually limit the amount of computing capacity that we allow into the world because I think trying to deal with the software, which a lot of people have proposed, I think is, is just completely hopeless. It's, you can't regulate software. It's just too difficult for all sorts of reasons. But you can definitely regulate the hardware because it's outrageously difficult to, to build modern computer chips and you know much more 
complicated than it would be to build an atomic bomb, for instance, which we've done a pretty good job of keeping track of at the very, at the very minimum. And so I think that uh, as we, as this potential problem comes into, into focus, that would be the solution that I would hope that we would do is just kind of limit the amount of compute because then that would allow us to kind of still have stuff to do. <laughs> I don't think the shareholders of NVIDIA will be very happy with you. I don't think they will be either, but I think they'll, they'll be fine. I think, you know, there'll still be a need for chips, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's my but sort legitimate of uses, legal uses. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's still a big market. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we shut everything down, but I just think we kind of put some, put some breaks on it because I, I do think that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of potential downside. Like, like um, what I, kind of scenarios yeah. are, are you thinking of? The idea would be that humanity just kind of starts pulling back from the means of production, right? Like as more and more things are done automatically, we're in a situation where, you know, our hand's not really on the wheel anymore, right? Like we're still sort of, we're in control. Even if you look at like the banking system, which, you know, the back end, of course, is built completely on AI, right? Like that's what's handling all the different communications. And, but it's still like we could stop it, right? Like it would cause the whole banking system to fall apart, but we could, we, we could still stop it. And as we continue to step back, you know, that I think that the fear is that we won't have that capability. And I, I, I just to be clear, like, I think that even if AI completely takes over, I think that the, it's more likely that it would be beneficial than not, but the downside of course is so bad, right? That, um, I don't think it's worth the risk, even if even if overall it's likely to be positive. And so I just think that uh, we would be better off sort of keeping our hands on the wheel. And in order to do that, I really do think that we need to sort of artificially stop ourselves from having that option because, you know, you've seen this with so many things, so many modern luxuries, right? It's really hard to let's say be, be like, all right, we have this sedentary job, but we're going to stay in shape by, taking it amongst our, taking it upon ourselves to go out and work out all the time, right? Like uh, same thing with really high calorie foods or anything else. It's like, if you just allow people to have the, the option to relax, typically they're gonna take it, right? And so if we have AI that can kind of do everything that, that, that's difficult, um, I think that it's, it's hard to think about how we stay and choose, right? Choose to stay in the loop by putting in all the hard yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're right about uh, uh, humans kind of taking the easier route. Well, based on uh, the U.S. being the most obese country in the world, our our complete success in controlling climate change and uh, cleaning up all the plastics in the ocean, I'm 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 optimistic. <laughs> Pollyanna, John. Yeah, yeah, in most things, but that 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 didn't have a great track track record. Uh, yeah. So, so we definitely should be concerned, uh, at, at least in terms of uh, this radical change in how humans, how human civilization is. It, this is something yeah. that that can that can definitely affect that. I, I mean, I think we're we're definitely li living in the hinge of history, as many people have put it. This is, I think, the most important time in the history of the world. And so, I mean, at the very least, that's kind of exciting. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what comes out of it, but it's, it's, I, it's, this revolution will be much bigger than any revolution in the past. Like certainly if you look at the industrial revolution, it's like, okay, that's cool that we have these 
machines that can provide power beyond that which you know nature can provide essentially but that was kind of fine because humanity wasn't really uh, our differentiating the, the thing that differentiated us wasn't our physical strength right and so having been displaced by machines not in my case that's for sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so that wasn't as different as this will be because you know, fundamentally, humanity views itself as sort of the intelligence of the world. And if that changes, then that's much more revolutionary than, you know, using a tractor instead of a horse. Hmm. So um, speaking of intelligence, right, uh, two things. One is that I took the quiz on your website. You, 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 <laughs> yeah. you can select whether you're a human or a bot, and I failed miserably. So great job on that. And the second is that you also... Um, it, you come from a non-technical background. Now you have a BA in English and you have a law degree. Yeah. Um, so do you have any advice for uh, maybe the non-technical folks and about, about how they can take part in, as you say, this this potentially fifth industrial revolution here or this this new paradigm shift that, 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 that we're seeing? Because it seems like folks who don't have, a, again, a technical background may find it um, sometimes difficult to navigate this space because they feel like they're under-equipped. So how do you do it? How did you do it? And what is your what was your your journey to, to get to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I would just say I, I did it badly is the way, the way to do it. Um, but I, I mean, I, I just did programming like when I was in high school and I, I just had a basic understanding of how to you know, really limited understanding of how to do it. But thankfully, the space that I'm in was not one that required a lot of technical know-how and really nobody had written the book about it, right? So it was all just sort of discovering the concepts on my own and didn't require any real complex math or anything, or at least as far as I know, probably did. And I just uh, <laughs> missed, missed that turn on the road. But I don't know, in terms of, of I mean, whether you have a technical background or not, I would actually encourage people to not get dive too deep into the world of AI because the the institutions that are doing this are you know really really well funded and a lot of them a lot of the new AI techniques just require a lot of of scale it's not like you can necessarily outthink somebody on your computer and then beat beat somebody you know beat one of these giants because they they're just using so much compute right so i i to the extent that people want to get involved in the AI space my strong suggestion would be to try to just use the tools that are out there and try to leverage your skills in things like sales, marketing, customer relationships, right? Like, I think that that's where the the, the more fruitful path lies is, is trying to, you know, leave the AI to these huge institutions and, and then try to, you know, make use of what they've built in a way that you can, you know, kind of leverage the specific, either the sort of domain knowledge that you have about a specific use case or the relationships that you have with potential customers or any of those things, I think will be far more valuable and likely to succeed than trying to, you know, build the next version of ChatGPT. Makes sense. Take heed. Take heed, folks. <laughs> I'm off on, on my next journey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm typing in now. How can podcasters profit off this AI boom? <laughs> what? Uh, so you talk to a lot of uh, potential new customers. What? What do you wish they they knew ahead of time, or that they understood <laughs> going into these meetings? <laughs> Man, now you're going to get me in a lot of trouble. 
there's a lot. But this loser thought. Yeah, jeez. No. I would say the main thing that, that is an issue is just what's the real state of their data? Because people say that like, oh, we have information on this or information on that. And then. Do they say data lake? A lot? Yeah, they, people say that for sure. But I think that a lot of times the data is more inconsistent than they realize. And so they say, oh, we have data on this. And it's like, well, you kind of sometimes have data on that, right? <laughs> you know, and sometimes you don't. <laughs> and our system is pretty flexible in terms of basically we say, hey, go look at at all the data that's there and then come up with a story from that. And as opposed to like these templates where it's like, all right, we need to put this in this basket and this in this basket. And that that templated approach on top of being repetitive and sort of dull also is less flexible, right? Like, so if you're missing certain parts of data, it kind of breaks as opposed to our system just kind of skips over that and talks about something else. But there, there comes a point where um, you really can't talk to, you know, what they really want to speak to as, as a, for the product um, if you're missing enough data or if it's inconsistent. And so I think that that's one of the things that's, that's definitely difficult from our standpoint is just, you know, trying to see exactly how we can get from their, their data to, um, to the goal, uh, to the kind of the output that they want. And unfortunately, I mean, I say that this is an issue I wish clients understood better, but it's, it's even something that we struggle with after we've had access to their data. And it's only, it's only sort of once you, you have the computer start to say, okay, let's start ingesting, you know, 1 million of these at a time that you start to realize like how many different quirks and issues there potentially are, right? Because you might not even notice it looking at a couple of sets of sample data, but it's like, oh, this looks pretty good. Um, and so I think that that's definitely something that, you know, I, it would be ideal if they had a little bit better sense of exactly uh-huh. how complicated or, or something where it's like, oh, these are where we store our, our goals for the month. But then actually like, Deborah on her with her clients has like an Excel spreadsheet and and mm-hmm. this other thing is that or you know we store most of them by clients but these other couple ones are stored by you know location or something you know like there's all these like little things that sort of add up over time within any organization where people have just you know done their own thing but if you're doing so, millions yeah. 98% start to spit out a lot of exceptions then huh yeah exactly and plus that's just along like sort of one dimension Right. So it's like, oh, 98% of these things within the data set are with, you know, within this field is fine. Right. But there might be 15 fields. Right. And so then you start to get into an issue where it's like, well, almost every one of these things has, you know, every one of the million has some sort of quirk to it. Yeah. And you can't just skip them all, you know, so you've got to come up with some sort of way of, of navigating those differences. Huh. So uh, manage your data. No exceptions. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, Deborah. You have to get that's off right. that spreadsheet. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah, basically, I, I don't want I don't want potential clients to come and see them. Now I'm doing a bad job marketing. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> you guys are good podcasters because I'm just I'm just like, oh, we're just we're just talking here, you know, and now I'm just like, well, actually should should try to put on a good well, face. Well, we'll tell you guys uh, listening. Yeah. Get your data done ahead of time before InfoSentience shows up <laughs> and has to point these things out to you. But yeah, that, that's always been a, a problem. I think a, uh, implementing any system, there, there's always some data issues and uh, a lot of uh, data analysts or data scientists 
have always been complaining about bad data and having to having their job turn into fixing data instead of doing their actual analysis or, or application. Yeah, and I think to to put my marketing hat back on, you know, one of the things that we've actually done is sort of use some of our technology to create better data entry systems because a lot of the foundations of what we do, again, with this idea of sort of conceptual understanding, right, is allows us to sort of help somebody tell the story of their own data, right, like as they're entering it, right? So a lot of the same basic principles that allow us to understand sort of what's important in a data set, allow us to understand what's important in the data entry and what are the different pathways that you could go down and things like that. So there are some clients where we've actually helped them make their data better. Uh, and so that's definitely something that we can try to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you've done a great job uh, helping us understand the story behind AI and uh, InfoSentience. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. John, Steve, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. That's Steve Wasik, the founder of InfoSentience. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in FinTech news. And thank you for listening.